Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Welcome, friends. This is Tent Talks. My name is Chris Marchand. As we work on a new series for you, we wanted to offer another bonus episode. Last week, I offered an extended interview with Rachel Wilhelm, who contributed the theme song to my series on women and church leadership. That interview also offered an unofficial continuation of our previous series, Followers on the Way, and this summer's Disagree. I wanted to give you one more example of disagreement by sharing part of my conversation with Austin M. Freeman, the author of Tolkien Dogmatics, Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle-Earth, out through Lexham Press. Dr. Freeman is assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University, where he teaches theology, philosophy, and literature classes. This interview was originally released on my own podcast, Post-Consumer Reports, but I wanted to share it with you here because I particularly ask Austin what he thinks Tolkien's views on war and violence were. This episode also contains two other Tolkien-related excerpts with Dr. Melody Green, who previously appeared on Tent Talks in 2021 and my own podcast in 2016. Since my interview with her, Melody has helped to edit the book J.R.R. Tolkien and the Arts, A Theology of Subcreation. Melody is the Dean of Urbana Theological Seminary, invited both myself and Dr. Freeman to lecture at the Tolkien Conference, which Urbana Seminary puts on every year. For more information on the conference and to see past presentations, including myself and Dr. Freeman, please go to TolkienConference.com. For me, the topic of Tolkien's views on the use of violence and the necessity of war is something I think about continually as I read his books. Next time you find yourself reading anything by him, whether it be The Hobbit, any volume of The Lord of the Rings, or his more obscure works like The Silmarillion or Unfinished Tales, pay attention to how sad they are. To me, much of his work is one long lament about how humanity is forever being drawn into destroying each other. We build up armies and arsenals. We begin to distrust our neighbors. We look to gain power and wealth and all for what? Well, so we can send our people across the globe and take over someone else's land. On and on it goes. Through the use of historical myth, Tolkien shows us just how devastating this all is. And thus, I was surprised, but not surprised, by some of Dr. Freeman's responses about what Tolkien thought about war and violence. He did, after all, fight in World War I and supported Britain's efforts in World War II. And yeah, despite all the lamenting in his work, there's a whole lot of warfare in the center of his tales as well. For me, what is strange and conflicting is loving Tolkien's work so much, seeing this incredible heart for nonviolence, seeing what could possibly be interpreted as a consistent anti-war ethic, and yet knowing that ultimately he would do what needed to be done and support his country, even if that meant his people going to another war. It makes me long for a modern storyteller who can create myth and fantasy on the same level as him. Someone that conveys stories showing nonviolence as the way. Maybe that storyteller is out there right now. I hope you enjoy these conversations. We'll start with the material from Melody Green and then transition into my recent talk with Austin M. Freeman. We as a culture uh, are, they, we want to believe that we're somehow like a civilized culture and 
We're going to try to make it so that people don't have to die anymore. Uh, uh-huh. But, you know, we, we try, you know, we, we wrap all of our meat in, in plastic and, and try to pretend as if we haven't killed animals. We, or we, we just don't want to think about it. And, you know, again, uh, you know, from from a Christian perspective, there are some Christians that don't necessarily want to talk about the death of the Son of God. We just kind of want to we want to glaze over that a little bit. I, I don't know, right. I, I, like, but but I mean, when you when you said uh, you know sacrificial death in children's literature, I was like, oh, there's probably a lot of that. Like, there is. Like it's there like a, it's like a big thing. I mean, it's it's a big thing in uh, mythology and legend, legends in general. Uh-huh. Which I would say is exactly why it shows up in children's literature, because those are some of the things that influence the stories that we tell children. Okay, so what are, like, where do you think it's, like, something like the theme of of sacrificial death in children's literature, where does it pop up in surprising ways? Like, in in, places that we don't even think of it as maybe uh, the, the prominent sacrificial deaths, but they're there. Oh, interesting question. Usually when I tell people that my dissertation was on sacrificial death in children's literature, they'll either say, oh my goodness, you mean like the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so that's like an obvious one. And then when I was actually working on my dissertation, I would have people say to me, oh, you mean like in Doctor Who? And that's actually how I was introduced to the television series Doctor Who, because the first few people who said that to me, I would say, what? Um, But other places that it shows up, you find it really in a lot of stories that have to do with, I would say, meaning, why do we exist, or stories that have to do with any kind of, even relationships that are... Not only do you get characters like Aslan, who is clearly a Christ figure, mm-hmm. but you often get parents dying to save their children. Mm-hmm. You get friends dying to save their friends. One of the things I discovered while I was working on my dissertation is that sacrificial death, really, there are five different things that, in a children's story, a sacrificial death, and I really put it in terms of um, economy, simply because it changed the way the story worked based on why a character died. So, like, you had characters who were dying to save their friends. That was an obvious one. Mm-hmm. And an example of that might be Gandalf the Lord of the Rings, when you've got the Balrog coming, and they're running across the bridge, and he turns around and says, fly to everybody else. Mm-hmm. You get characters who die to bring about some good for a community. And Madeline Lingle's an acceptable time. There's someone who's there is a sacrificial death that is going to be happening. These people believe they have to kill somebody for the rain to come. So that becomes a death that somehow buys the good for a community. You get sacrifices that will buy a good name. So, for example, Boromir in The Lord of the Rings. He dies to save Marion Pippin, but that actually restores his position because he had you know, tried to steal the ring. And then, you know, because he realized what he had done was wrong and he was trying to protect hobbits now, that kind of buys back what he had lost. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Um, I'm trying to think what the other two are. There's one sacrifice that buys, oh, the word I'm looking for is, is escaping me, but knowledge, basically. Mm. And the only example I can think of off the top of my head mm-hmm. is in not a children's book, but Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, where there's a character who knows that he doesn't know something mm. and he decides to let these people who are hunting him down there, he's going to let them kill him because hmm. they will say things in front of someone who they believe is dead or who is dead that they would never say in front of an alive person. It's hmm. an odd story, 
but yeah, right, that right. buys a bunch of knowledge for people huh. that helps them figure out what all, what is going on in the situation. So it's the the obvious ones are ones like Aslan. It's the other ones that sometimes become surprising when you see them, simply because you don't necessarily expect like a a yeah. for knowledge or something like that. All right, so here here I have a I have a loaded question somewhat. Okay. Um, and I asked this from my own experience. I, I remember uh-huh. when I got to my undergraduate, I had some great literature professors, but they didn't they didn't respect or care about things like Tolkien and Lewis. Uh-huh. They saw it as either just children's lit, and they they used that in a pejorative way. Um, right. It was it was fluff fantasy. It was too overtly Christian. It was just too allegorical. You know, being feminist uh, women professors, they also kind of saw it as sexless, ultra-masculine, pre-modern throwbacks. So what, what, what my question for you is, as a woman and as a Christian, as a scholar, how do you respond to those kinds of criticisms that are typically levied at like fantasy lit or even, you know, Tolkien and Lewis? How have you, have you taken flack for it and how do you respond to it? That is a huge question. Um, <laughs> that's an excellent question, but it's a huge question. As I'm going to start with the um, comment about as a woman, because I think that's the easiest one. Mm. When I was working on my PhD, there were two definite camps of interpretation about Tolkien and Lewis and women. One of them was that they were both extremely sexist. Mm -hmm. The other one was they were both extremely liberating. And it depended on what part of the books you were actually looking at. I would say that both of them were very much in between. They lived in Oxford at a time when there was still, there was a lot of gender division and things going on. Women were allowed to take classes when they were there. And in fact, it wasn't until the 1920s that women were allowed to get actual diplomas from Oxford. Until then, they would get, they would do the same work, but they would get what was called a ladies' certificate instead of a diploma. <laughs> so they were students at a time when women were still not getting diplomas. So when they were teachers there, they were definitely not as, well, I'm just going to use the phrase narrow-minded. That's a loaded phrase, but um, Mm. they were not as narrow-minded as the the world they had grown up in. That doesn't mean that they always got everything right. One of my students, I'm teaching a Tolkien class right now, and one of my students, about two weeks ago, we were talking about Gladrail, and one of my students commented, there aren't very many women in these books. And another student said, well, no, but everyone you meet is important. Like, mm. That's interesting. Yeah. I think part of it is also with like Tolkien, he's writing in the style of Anglo-Saxon literature. Mm-hmm. He's writing in the style of many different kinds of ancient literatures where women just weren't that, there weren't that many of them in the stories. So I don't know that that's a reason to call him a sexist writer, as, like, as my student said, every woman who shows up in his work is important. As a Catholic, Tolkien definitely believed in hierarchy. He believed that, you know, God is above all, and within the Catholic, um, the Catholicism that he practiced, there's definitely angels and hierarchies within the angels. Humans are a little lower than the angels. Animals are lower than humans. It's a very well thought out structure. In terms of creation of beings, there's definitely a hierarchy. In terms of government, not as much. Um, So we get Gondor, there's definitely supposed to be a king overall. There's a return of the king that everybody 
that will make everything better. But then you get the Shire where, yeah, government's not such a good thing. So this letter that I mentioned, it was written when Tolkien's son, Christopher, was drafted into the military and he was um, in the Royal Air Force. So he's at a training camp, 18 years old, trying to figure out what's going on in the world. His dad writes him this letter. My political opinions lean more and more to anarchy, philosophically understood, meaning abolition of control, not whiskered men with bombs, or to unconstitutional monarchy. I would arrest anyone who uses the word state. And then he goes on about, you know, ex explaining England as a state and why we, yeah, shouldn't use that word. If we could get back to personal names, it would do a lot of good. Government is an abstract noun meaning the art and process of governing, and should be an offense to write it with a capital G or so as to refer to people. If people were in the habit of return, current, uh, referring to King George's council, Winston and his gang, it would go a long way to clearing thought and reducing the frightful landslide into theocracy. Theocracy is what he's using to describe people over there ruling the people over here, that distance between the people who are ruling and the people who are being ruled. Are you saying, just to clarify on that what? word, did you say theocracy? Theocracy. It's a pronoun? Own word. What? His own word. It's a pronoun. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. okay. I want to make, make sure I heard that correctly. Yes. Um, so then he adds that it, within this letter, um, the, most imp the most improper job of any man, even saints, who at least at any rate were at least unwilling to take it on, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and at least all of those who seek the and least of, sorry least of all those who seek the opportunity, and at least it is done only to a small group of men who know who their master is. The medievals were only too right in taking Nilo Episcopari. Um, I don't want to be the leader as the best reason a man could give to others for making him a bishop. Give me a king whose chief interest in life is stamps, railways, or racehorses, and so forth. He's so Tolkien himself, he says it's either anarchy or unconstitutional monarchy, either no leaders or that leader who just has the absolute power, but they really don't want to be a leader. They'd much rather be playing with their stamp collection. So I think that says a lot about the hobbits. So this is where I think Tolkien is, as an anarchist comes out, because uh -huh. obviously, like he even points out, an anarchist doesn't mean a beardy guy with a bomb it it means your attitude towards power and the anarchist right. is always trying to give it give it away whereas exactly. the hierarchist or whatever you want to call them is trying to grasp it and concentrate Excellent. yes yes and so excellent. tolkien is thinking i i'm not power is dangerous it's not something to accumulate it, it it's bad for everybody when somebody has too much of it exactly including the person who has it <laughs> exactly so and that's part of why, yeah, yeah, it's part of why Gandalf is actually relieved when he can't help Frodo anymore. There's a moment yes. when he looks looks to that's the east, right. and then he's like, "Well, I can't, I can't, I yeah. can't, basically, I can't find it." Um, well, good. At least that that temptation's over now. So yes, I, you're, yeah. you're right. That's so interesting that the temptations are always to to power, right? Every time mm -hmm. any character is tempted, it's always that they could have this power to do something good even, or that they could do what they wanted. And so it's a relief for these characters when they mm -hmm. no longer have control. 
Right. It is interesting. You said that every temptation is to power. There's also, I would say, the opposite temptation to despair, to giving up power when you should be. Okay. Okay. We got Denethor and Theoden are both examples of people who should have stepped up. Right. And and acted on the power that they had and did not. And in Theoden's case, he changes because he listens to Gandalf. Denethor doesn't listen to Gandalf. Is the moral of the story listen to Gandalf? (laughs) Or is it more about taking responsibility? Actually, I like that. Moral of the story is listen to Gandalf. Gandalf. Um, (laughs) We now need bracelets that say, what would Gandalf do? Um, the, The temptation... I think that's still wrapped up in the power that you're talking about. That temptation is about power, but it's not just to take it when you shouldn't take it, but not to step into that position. When right. Right. But yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, we under, mm-hmm. I don't think in any uh, definition, we would say that Tolkien was a pacifist, but he is definitely ambiguous about military power as mm-hmm. a solution to problems. Mm-hmm. Do you know, have you done much work in his own experience as a soldier and how he then works that out in his books? Of, what of I would what say it is, to be a soldier? is you re, is to really look at that de- in depth. You need to read John Garth's um, Tolkien in the Great War. Okay. It's an entire study of how World War One affected uh, Tolkien's books. So John Garth is a brilliant scholar who actually did some amazing research through documents in British um, British government documents in some cases. Where was Tolkien when at these different in these different wars? He even figured okay. out that at one point Tolkien and A.A. A. Milne, who created Winnie the Pooh, were actually in the same place at the same time. But of course, neither of them were Tolkien and A.A. A. Milne yet in the way that we think of them. So John Garth did this amazing set of research. The first part of the book is just all of that. And then the second part of the book is looking at how these things are worked out in his literature. And he does. And one of the things that stands out the most to me in that is some of the visual imagery, like looking at the faces in the dead marshes. Yeah. The way they're described is very much looking through a gas mask in the middle of the mustard attack. Did I say mu- yeah, anyway, <laughs> you know yeah, what must- I mean. Mustard gas attack. Mustard gas, sure. yes. Yeah. Like the visual representation is definitely there, and I do, I do think at some level that's a lot of what Tolkien is talking about is in the Lord of the Rings, working out when is a war just? When do we need to step up and take that power? Because you get that balance. There are the people like Gandalf who just have it. People like Denethor and Theoden who should be doing something they're not. People like Boromir who get tempted to power and because of his temptation, things went very, and that he gave into the temptation, things went very badly for a while. He's forgiven. He confesses and is forgiven by Aragorn, but that still was not good what happened because of that. The balance of power is a complex one. How does a person know when they're the person who's supposed to step up or not or do something or not? Which is probably why Frodo's statement, I will take the ring, but I do not know the way, is in many ways the bravest thing that is said in the entire Lord of the Rings, not just because Mm. he's offering to die in a horrible way, most likely, but because that's the biggest risk, is someone who shouldn't be stepping into a position that's going to affect other people's lives. Is this someone who should be doing it or not? And Elrond and says... 
I believe this task is appointed for you. And then Gladrail yeah. repeats it later. Yes, you're the person who should be doing this. So and all the military, all the military might is mm-hmm. used to help facilitate that journey. So yes, and then right at the end, Aragon's final stand is they know they're going to die, but they they're doing it to save a bit of time. Like they're just hoping that they'll be su- it'll keep keep yeah. the eye of Sauron off of Frodo and Sam. And everything is always like the military might or the killing is not the. I think the movies may have done us a disservice, or at least they've they've many created <laughs> in people uh, mm-hmm. the idea that it's all about swords and magic, when actually it's about self sacrifice and humility. Exactly. And, and and Sam and Frodo throw away their weapons at the end. I mean, they mm-hmm. don't even use them, and so it's just like there's. I th- I know Tolkien is doing something more with fighty fighty swords and sandals kind of stuff than I think we think he is. Yes. I was talking to my friend, David Benjamin, a friend to this show and who listeners of this program will probably listen to nomad podcast as well. And he's a singer songwriter and he's also a Tolkien fan and a Silmarillion fan. And we were talking about, about this and, and he was saying, well, you know, like, yeah, sometimes you got to fight the orcs and because, because he and I are both, committed to non-violence uh-huh. uh and but and we realized that Tolkien was was not but that's fine but then <laughs> but then we realized yeah it's all very well people all these Christians using Tolkien as their justification for fighting evil but the evil in Tolkien's world are always orcs mm-hmm. um there is a <laughs> that that means if you're going to draw a lesson you have to dehumanize your human enemies in order to make out that they are orcs <laughs> you know right. there's there's more going on like I, I i wonder what would happen in lord of the rings if all of the enemies were actually just human beings and in fact mm-hmm. when you meet human being enemies they are treated with a lot more uh, awareness right like when faramir yes. he wonders he says i wonder if this southron if he has a family back home and i wonder if he thought he was doing something evil and mm-hmm. There's that kind of like the only way Tolkien can have his his justified violence is if his enemies are inhuman monsters. And as soon as they become human, you can't justify the violence anymore. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he justifies that violence either. Yeah. The only reason the men from the South are part of the people they're fighting is because of who they've aligned themselves with. And they yes. don't. They, they don't have the choice. The, the good guys will say don't have the choice of saying, well, we'll only fight orcs when humans and orcs are mixed in together fighting against them. But yeah, I I think that that's a really good observation that Tolkien's, a lot of the violence that does happen, it's against orcs. It's against a giant dragon. It's against, um, like in the Battle of the Five Armies, it's very clear that the hobbits, the hobbits, the dwarves, the humans, and the elves should not be fighting against each other and they should be united against a different enemy actual monsters yeah exactly yeah exactly the actual monsters in their world which are not the more human characters but the more fantasy creatures that are that are in and of themselves i know tolkien's not into allegory i'm looking at a picture of tolkien right here although i'm gonna like he's gonna frown at me if i say the wrong thing so i apologize (laughs) i keep looking i despise allegory (laughs) in all its forms (laughs) exactly so he's not doing allegory but at the same time you can't help but think about um, exactly. When you see his monsters as embodiments of evil, and yeah. that's really the the whole idea of it, and yeah. that they're not human, they're not. That's not what they're supposed to be. So I think it is very easy for, and it it, it concerns me sometimes when I see Christians using Tolkien examples when they probably shouldn't. 
because as you say, they're not, he's not pro fighting. He's pro little people. That yeah. sounds really odd when we're talking about hobbits, but he's pro <laughs> the, the yeah. individual living their lives in the best way that they can. Yeah. Exactly. And allowing them to do that. Yeah. And so I think maybe what I what I wrestle with part of my own faith tradition is is how do we seek nonviolence? And maybe what I what I wrestle with and and this is this is this goes in with teaching junior hires and high schoolers especially boys, they're really enraptured with the warfare. And granted, you know, like you, you mentioned Star Wars earlier on. I mean, that's, that's my life is Star Wars. It's literally, you know, Star Wars, you know, it's like, and it's, and it's, again, it's another not unending cycle. Right. Uh, and, and then in that case, that's, that's a different kind of cosmology, right. You know, like how to, you know, the balance of the dark side and the, in the light side of the force, you know, whatever we, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's different a whole episode. other, yeah, exactly. Different episode. But so I have these young men that are just like, they're enraptured with the battles and they're really interested in it. And I, I it's not like I expect a lot because, you know, they're going to develop and maybe one day they'll read it again. But what I see in Tolkien is a pervading sadness about it all. Right. And so there is an ache every time that this has to happen. It's just like a, Oh no. You know, like there's just this, there's this lament um, and I can see it in the face of his writing, so to speak. Like, like it's his it's his imprint of it. And I guess maybe I can couch this with another swing of it. And 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 I'm always fascinated by the whole the paradox of well, I'm a monarchist, but I'm actually an anarchist. I, I'm just like I love that he's kind of trolling us a bit. I don't I don't know what he's doing. Maybe you have some some opinions on that. But all I mean to say is warfare represents participation in the needs of the state because of great evil, some something horrible has happened. But he also has these characters like Tom Bombadil, that's just kind of like, yeah, I'm not gonna do any of that. I, you know, uh, you guys have fun. I'm gonna be out here prancing with my wife, you know, doing doing the nature thing. And <laughs> and so he seems to have these kind of, these, these you know, these uh, ambivalent answers to like, what does it mean to live the life of justice and of righteousness? One is, well, you fight evil. And the other one is you live a life of goodness and you don't let the, you don't, you don't practice the ways of the world. And I, and I guess I kind of like how there's multiple answers, right? There's not, he doesn't actually offer one answer. There's a vastness in the amount of answers. And I guess, I don't know, what, what do you make of that? And where do you fall down in, in, on that particular side of his stories? Um, yeah. I would push back a little bit on that interpretation yeah. of Bombadil actually. Like okay. I do go do for it. Yeah. That, I do think that Bombadil does represent deliberately, um, deliberately trolling us on putting everything into nice, neat categories. I think that's one of the reasons why Bombadil's in there. But if you look at the Council of Elrond, yeah. like they ask, why can't we just give it to him? Why can't we have him watch over it? And it's it's not a good thing, right? He would, he would lose it. He would throw it away. And ultimately, because Tom Bombadil has not resisted, then he would be destroyed, right? He would be the last one that Sauron would overtake, Elrond says. So Tom Bombadil is able to be a pacifist because he has the privilege of being a pacifist because other people are not. Now, it's it's up to us personally to decide which role we want to play, I suppose. But I think it's very clear that for Tolkien, somebody needs to play that role. He's a war author. He saw all of his friends, like the, these 
poets, these artists, these brilliant young men going off with their Chapman's Homer in their breast pocket, thinking that they're going to have some fun and they're going to participate in the glory of battle. And it's going to be just like they read in the Iliad. And they're going to, they're going to swap epithets across the battle lines. And um, then they'll, they'll come home with all of this glory. Um, and then they just die in the mud, cut down by machine gun fire. Uh, and he's like, well, this is this was not a good thing. War is not a good thing. War is not something that you ever need to enjoy. That's why he's got that line by Faramir, right? I do not love war. I, I, I do not love the sword. I love only the thing that it defends. That's Tolkien's attitude. He doesn't like war. He's He is anti-war, but he is pro whatever you're fighting the war in order to save. Obviously, if you can get around the war part, then all the better. But if you can't, and sometimes you can't, like, I think that's one of the other things that Tolkien makes us realize is sometimes you can't get around it. Like he was very much okay with, think about that, after personally going through World War I and losing all but one of his closest friends, he wants to go fight Hitler. He's like, if only I were a younger man. So think, think about that. If you had if you had lived through that experience of war, would you ever want to go do it again? And it's not because Tolkien had a blast and he wants to go off and, and kill Nazis. It's because he wants to defend his home. That's why I think the scouring of the Shire is so important. Uh, that really is the, it needs to be the end of the story, is that war isn't something that you go off and you have your glory and you come home. It's also something like you need to you need to be defending your homeland right now before it gets to that point. Kick the guy out before he becomes the tyrant and before people start getting killed. Go go home and save your shire and and put it straight so that you can so that you don't have to fight anymore. Um, but notice very significantly, I think the best example of pacifism is in Lord of the Rings is not Tom Bombadil. I think Tom Bombadil sort of gets disapproved of almost. It's Frodo. Frodo is the pacifist. Like literally Saruman tries to kill him and he lets him go. So the, uh, not to say that Tolkien is anti-pacifist in every sense. There, Frodo is the nonviolent figure. He comes he comes back and he does not pick up a sword. He does not participate, um, except in terms of counsel. If, if I were going to look at nonviolence, I would look there. But I, yeah, I, I don't think that Tolkien is thinking in, in necessarily in pacifistic categories other than as like personal individual decisions. Yeah, I see that as well. I, I, and I would, I would agree. And maybe what I would say too is, as Tolkien continues to be part of our public consciousness and our conversation, maybe you can speak to this. I see. Maybe this is the age we're living in, and and maybe it's the age of maybe it's every age. You know, like uh, I mean, I get it. I get wanting to kill a Nazi. I mean, I just I just enjoyed my latest uh, Indiana Jones movie, and you know, the Nazis show up, and I'm like, oh, I hate Nazis. I'm right there with you, Indy. You know, like yeah, I, I totally get it. But one thing I see in Tolkien. And maybe people don't quite see it because we're so easily given over to, well, here's the enemy. Let's defeat the enemy. I want the very enemy resistant. to die. What's that? Very resistant to demonization, actually. Yes, exactly. So like with Saruman, it's like, there's always, please, Saruman, here's a chance. Will you change? You have time to repent if you so desire to it. And also, like maybe it's Gandalf always kind of working behind the scenes. It's kind of like this, like... I think maybe I'll speak as Americans. I see a lot of Americans around us thinking, I will answer with the weapon, with the gun. And that's how I will always answer. And that's the best way. And I see Tolkien going, 
Ah, but is there another way? Is there another way that we can accomplish this without having to resort to that? Now, again, like you said, there are times, that, according to Tolkien, where he's going to he's going to say that yes, it's going to have to resort to to warfare because what else is there to do? Um, but he's always going, yeah. But what if we didn't have to do that? What if we found another way? And so I, I find that so fascinating with his writing. Go ahead. Um, so the, in his letters, he talks about the orcs, right? A lot of people, a lot of current Tolkien criticism revolves around this, and they they criticize him for creating this race which only exists to be slaughtered by the good guys and if you read Tolkien closely that's actually not what he does at all he it really struggles with the idea of orcs where did they come from how is it possible that a, a race of beings could be inherently evil that way is it possible I mean he has a point where he says orcs are basically under the Geneva Convention like or, orcs need to be given mercy if they beg for it that they, they follow the rules of warfare um, we never see them do it, but he says that it, in principle that should happen. So the Sam musing over the the dead Easterling, right? Did this guy really want to be here? Wouldn't he much rather have just been at home in peace? Um, he he's a man, he's a human. Uh, in the middle of World War II, like uh, with literal Nazis and not just people that happen to disagree with me on some point, um, as as that's the, what Nazi means now. The actual Nazis that were exterminating people. Uh, Tolkien had to remind his letter his his letter recipients, there are orcs on both sides of this war, right? That the people are doing this. We can't just shut them out and say that they're that they're something that's different than us. That they're a different race. That they're some sort of monsters. We are people, and they are people. And that's a in in one sense that's a horrible thing because that means that people are capable of this. In another sense, it's a sobering thing because it means that I too could be capable of this and they too could be capable of, of, of goodness. Um, so Tolkien's always muddling the waters. He, he wants to talk about, or he's okay with talking about works in fiction, but whenever it comes to using, to using his own work as a, a reflection or a model or an example of how to engage with the world, like the real world, uh, he, he does not like uh, this categorization of us versus them. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.